uh, <clears throat> singing friends are not leaving because they can't take any more of my preaching. <laughs> They're going to sing for some of the young folks around here somewhere, and they'll be back. I've seen folks get up and leave, and I wondered why, but I'm glad to know why these are yours. I want to read from Matthew, the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. That's the reason why. <clears throat> woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, O Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You will observe that our Lord pronounced judgment on three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Capernaum had been the center of his activity. Come right in, folks, the more the merrier. Get right down here in the amen corner. We've been a little short on amens all week anyhow, so come down here. Maybe you're the answer to our prayer. Who knows? <clears throat> Capernaum had <clears throat> been the center of our Lord's activity during a large part of his public ministry. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, but when he left Nazareth, he dwelt in Capernaum, Matthew 4.13. It was the earthly home of Jesus Christ. Nearby, he called the fishermen and Matthew, and it was the scene of most of his mighty works. He healed the centurion's servant and the nobleman's son and Peter's mother-in-law and the paralytic and cast out the demon and in the synagogue gave that great discourse on the bread of life. But for all that, they repented not. And so he pronounced judgment, and any traveler to Israel knows that Capernaum is in ruins to this day. 
They didn't violently oppose my Lord and cast him out of the city. They did that at Nazareth. They didn't crucify him. They did that in Jerusalem. They simply refused to repent. Jerusalem still stands, and so does Nazareth, but Capernaum's gone. There is more hope for outright opposition than there is for polite indifference. I felt so utterly unknown to folks, it seems today. Somebody over in Birmingham, England, wrote something that'll do for Birmingham, Alabama, and everywhere else. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him to the tree. They drove great nails through feet and hands and called it Calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel times, and human life was cheap. But when Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him. They only let him die. For man had grown more tender, they would not cause him pain. They only passed on down the street and left him in the rain. And Jesus prayed, forgive them, for they know not what to do. And still it rained, the winter rain that chilled him through and through. The night grew dark, the streets were still, and there was none to see as Jesus leaned against the wall and cried for Calvary. Now, why was the judgment on Capernaum so severe? Why did Jesus say it will be more tolerable for Sodom of all places than for Capernaum? The very word Sodom is a synonym for moral corruption, and sodomy is another word for homosexuality, one of the vilest forms of depravity, which, in spite of all modern efforts to dress it up and make it respectable, comes under the severest condemnation of God. And yet, my Lord said it will be more tolerable for Sodom. Why? If you forget what else I say... Remember this, judgment is in proportion, not to how many sins we have committed, but how much light we have rejected. Now don't misunderstand me, we are punished by our sins as well as for them, both. If a man dies of a disease because he wouldn't take the medicine, he still died of the disease. But Capernaum will fare worse in the day of judgment than Sodom because Capernaum had more light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And in Matthew 4 we read, And leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephilim by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light has sprung up. The light of the world had visited Capernaum, and light brings responsibility. And Capernaum had reneged on its responsibility. I wish people knew John 3.19 as well as they know John 3.16. We don't seem to know much about that one. And yet it says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. 
But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. When I had a little country church a long, long time ago, I remember one little woman, a saint of the Lord, came every Sunday night and sat over there to my right. She was married to a, an unsaved man. Uh, he would bring her to church and sit out in the car through the service, out in the dark, more ways than one. And as she sat there, I thought about this verse, and you change it a, li a little. She that doeth truth comes to the light, that her deeds may be made manifest that they are wrote in God. She wanted to hear more of it. But the other verse describes the fellow out in the car. He that does evil hates the light. He didn't like my preaching. Neither cometh to the light. He wouldn't come and hear it, lest his deeds should be reproved. Perfect description of those two folks. He wouldn't come because he knew that if he got in there, the light would be turned on. And he'd wriggle around and squirm and be perfectly miserable. Have you ever walked alone on a summer day and overturned a large rock and all the creeping and crawling things underneath began hurrying and scurrying for cover? When the light of God has turned on our hearts, there's something like that going on. There's an uneasiness. And that's what this old boy couldn't take. Men reject Jesus Christ for moral, not for philosophical reasons. They're sinners, and they don't want to confess, and they don't want to repent, and they don't want to give up their sins, so they invent philosophical excuses to cover up the real reason, and an excuse is just the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And a man's not a sinner because he's a skeptic. He's a skeptic because he's a sinner. And his skepticism is just the smokescreen behind which he tries to hide his sins. America's had the greatest gospel opportunity of any nation on earth. We've had more churches, more preaching, more Christian schools, more light. Now, if judgment is in proportion to light rejected, God have mercy on America. I'd rather be a pagan in Africa with no light than a cultured America who has sinned against the light. Capernaum uh, came under great condemnation more than Sodom because Capernaum had more light than Sodom ever had. How about America? Think of the privileges your city and mine has had in all these years of open Bibles and open churches, Christian testimony. America doesn't feel much of a need of God these days because we think we can work out our own salvation. Our forefathers had a dream of building a nation on scriptural principles, but that vision gave way to the democratic philosophy of Tom Paine and Thomas Jefferson with its humanistic belief in the innate goodness of man and his own perfectibility. The ideas that came over here came in part out of the Reformation and in part out of the French Revolution. And uh, so to this day, the priesthood of the believer is confused with the brotherhood of man. And we're trying to create a false millennium and a counterfeit kingdom of heaven superimposed on an unregenerate society that refuses to bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This country is now 200 years old, may be in the terminal stage of moral cancer because we have rejected the light that shines three ways in the Savior, I'm the light of the world, in the Scripture, the entrance of thy words giveth light, and in the saints, ye are the light of the world. In the Savior, in the Scriptures, and in the saints, threefold light, and we have rejected it. 
Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it's not enough to repent, just change your mind from. You have to change your mind to something. And America's not about to be willing to receive the kingdom of heaven. We're trying to build our own. Jesus said to Capernaum, if thou be exalted to heaven, you will go to hell. The Tower of Babel was man's first effort to reach heaven in his own way. Let us build us a tower. You know the old uh, word that the Bible teachers have used so much that all of history is wrapped up in three let us's over there. In Genesis, let us make man our own image. Let us build a tower to heaven. Let us go down and confound them. That's history in a nutshell, just in a few words. We're building our tower by technological know-how, but we're not building it to heaven. It's more like hell. And instead of turning to the God who became man, we're getting ready for the man who will claim to be God. And uh, there are those now who uh, want to become God and give God his walking papers. And there are some who think that since we are mastering the laws of the physical universe and can send a picture-taking apparatus to Mars, that we can make the moral laws. But morals are not keeping step with the machinery. Arnold Toynbee, one of the greatest of historians, uh, was quite bothered about how any nation as well educated as Germany could go crazy and follow a man like Hitler. And he wound up sounding like a preacher. There must be a vein of original sin in human nature everywhere to which Hitlerism makes a strong appeal. The moral is that civilization is nowhere and never secure. It is a thin cake of custom overlying a molten mass of wickedness that is always boiling up for an opportunity to burst out. Civilization cannot ever be taken for granted. Its price is eternal vigilance and ceaseless spiritual effort. That's right. Far as he goes with it. That's right. Uh, some of these very smart people who are writing today, like Lewis Mumford, uh, he got out a book about uh, uh, the myth of the machine, the Pentagon of power. And he said that the machine is about to take over and put us out of our own position. And that's quite right. You know the hero of years ago, uh, first man to fly the Atlantic, Charles Lindbergh. Those of us who can remember that day it was really a day. I don't think any hero since has quite reached the immediate height that that young man did. Even Calvin Coolidge got excited. <laughs> and I tell you anything that would get Cal stirred up, and it had to be something. But Lindbergh went on to become one of the most disillusioned men who ever walked this earth. He knew just about everything you can know about airplanes. He was a master pilot. He had many fine qualities, but he grew so weary of publicity and then the death of his baby and all the frustration and the futility that crowded upon him. One hardly heard of him in the last years and died over there and was buried in a fatigue outfit in Hawaii. And he said this, and it's an honest confession that's good for the soul. I have felt the godlike power that man derives from his machines, but I have seen the science I worshipped and the aircraft I loved destroying the civilization 
I expected them to serve. Now that's not somebody on a back street token. This is one of the leaders of his time in that field. Utter disillusion. And I think Lindbergh just about decided that the biggest joke of all was this thing we call progress. I don't know where it is. I've been looking for it. We're going somewhere, but where? Why, when I grew up down here in Catawba County, we never locked our doors at night. When we went to the revival meeting, we didn't lock the doors. Nobody was going to break in the house. Dad used to run a little cannon shop, and we left, and I don't mean the kind you shoot, but cannon goods and fruit. And uh, we left it all out there on the counter. Nobody ever stole any of it. I was in a motel the other day where they had the telephone and the lamp screwed to the table. <laughs> you couldn't move a thing in there. You heard about that woman the other day said, I'm as mad as can be. Somebody got in my kitchen and stole all my Holiday Inn towels. That's where we are. But we are so smart. Now, one of England's leading scientists, provost of King's College at Cambridge, imagine any human being being presumptuous enough to say human scientists now have it in their power to redesign the face of the earth and to decide what kind of species shall survive to inherit it. How they actually use this terrible potentiality must depend on moral judgments, not on reason. But who shall decide and how shall we judge? There can be no source for these moral judgments except the scientist himself. If that isn't the last word in pride, well, I don't know what it is. So we must now learn to play God in a moral as well as a creative or destructive sense. We ourselves have to decide what is sin and what is virtue, and we must do so on the basis of our modern knowledge and not on the basis of traditional categories. But unless we teach those of the next generation that they can afford to be atheists, only if they assume the moral responsibilities of God, the prospects for the human race are decidedly bleak. Well, I'll say they are if you're going to believe this. This business of man becoming God started in Eden, you know, ye shall be as gods. And it ends with Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The final conflict between God who became man, the man who will claim to be God. But don't you worry about man toppling the Almighty from his throne. God's patient. He may allow us to demonstrate uh, in some awful way that we're not capable of handling our own discoveries. And when we sit in the shambles of the wreckage we created, God will step in and take over and say, all right, boys, you've had it long enough. I, of course, it's wonderful that a machine can, tra uh, can travel 213 million miles in five months to get to some planet stuck away out there in space. And the day may come, I don't know, I don't know how far you can carry this business, where you might walk there, but uh, I'm not half so much concerned about that as the fact that he's never learned how to walk on this earth. 
I spent one whole afternoon on the Mount of Olives and thought about that blessed verse that Jesus is going to put his feet right down on that place and split that mountain in two. And I'm more concerned not on man's feet on Mars, but my Lord's feet on the Mount of Olives one of these days. Well, why won't people repent? Well, I didn't read all of this portion of Scripture to you a moment ago. Uh, I could have started at verse 16. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced, and we have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid these cities. So you see how it all fits together. Jesus said that his generation was like children playing in the marketplace, like spoiled, pampered, petulant, fussy children. Isn't that a perfect description of this present day? Neither John the Baptist nor the Lord pleased them. So today we live in a generation that's just playing at everything, including religion. Nothing's real. It's all make-believe. We're just acting. It may be religious acting. A lot of it is. A pious masquerade, a form, a facade of religion without any power. Church staffs, we pay them to do church work, and then we come on Sunday morning and sit there and watch them do it. <laughs> Dr. Phillips says the tragedy is that Christianity began as an experience and has become a performance. It's just something we put on. Pharisees, and you know what that means, play actors. That's what a hypocrite is. Now, America's not about to repent. So the only alternative is retribution, as our Lord said here. Some think God may use Russia as he used the Assyrian rod of his anger as an instrument to bring America to her knees in an hour of disaster. But if New York City disappeared tonight in uh, an atomic blast, this nation would not turn to God. Revelation tells us that after the fearful judgments poured out in the sixth seal and the fifth vial, still men repented not of their sins. And when London huddled in the bomb blitz of World War II, they toughed it out, they joked about it, but they didn't repent. But I thank God there's another message in Matthew 11, and I read it. After pronouncing judgment on the three cities because they repented not, he turns from the, uh, the city to the citizen and from the institution to the individual and says, now whatever the city may do, and uh, whatever the institution may do, you don't have to do that. Come unto me and rest. And whatever your city does, whatever America does, you don't have to live in the midst of all this bedlam without peace. You can have peace with God and the peace of God, whatever other folks may do. Oh, notice the sublimity of it. I read that to you a moment ago. He, he first shows us what his resources are. He said, uh, all things are delivered unto me. He said, Father, I thank you because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. And then he said, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son reveal him. It is as though he were saying, now here are my resources. Before I invite you, I want you to know what I've got. 
the sublimity of it, and then look at the simplicity of it. There is no simpler way on earth to say it than this. All little words as it stands in our Bible, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I challenge you to make it any simpler than that. And then the secret of it. How? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's an obtainment. Come and I'll give it to you. It's an attainment. Learn of me and you'll find it. And you say, now that's sort of mixed up. No, it isn't. You go to college for an education, you matriculate, but you don't graduate when you matriculate. You start something, they don't give you an education in a little box with a pink ribbon tied around it. You have to go to school. When you come to Jesus, you get all that there is in him for yourself. But he says, now you've got to go to school. Go to my school, be my disciple, do your homework, don't be a dropout, and you will find the life of rest for the rest of life. And it will not be bondage, it will be liberty. His commandments are not grievous. It's not a, a burden. It's a way to make the burden light. It's not a load. It's a lift. It's not weight. It's wings. So that's the lesson of Capernaum because the light has come, responsibility has come, and if they won't repent, then there'll have to be retribution, but if they will repent, there'll be rest, and that's the whole program. Now let me say this. Church people, even fundamental orthodox conservative Bible conference folks can sin against the light. And I sometimes get uneasy in these Bible conferences. I go from one to another and I get under conviction myself and for the people. Sometimes I think maybe we get pretty satisfied and we forget that where much is given of him shall much be required. And the more privilege and responsibility you have, the greater is the requirement. We boast of our greater advantages today. Well, if so, we have more responsibility. We're building bigger churches and raising more money, but we're not producing better Christians. And we ought to be better preachers. I think of the little country preachers that came to the church in my boyhood days. They didn't have much money. They had very few books. They didn't have radio, they didn't have the media, they didn't have the communications. They hadn't had much instruction. As, an, as I've said here before, they usually stayed at our house that one Saturday night in the month when they came to preach on Sunday, and Dad would sit up at midnight plying them with questions. I tell you, they earned their bed and board at our house. By the time my daddy got through asking Bible questions, that preacher was ready to go to bed. And he was hungry for more truth. He didn't have advantages uh, radio except in the very last years of his life and not television and all these other improvements. We ought to be better Christians for the light we've had. And when we refuse to do what we know we ought to do, we sin against the light because to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And that'll hold for a Bible Christian when we allow in our lives what the voice of conscience condemns, we sin against the light. When we harbor an evil spirit towards somebody, resentments, grudges, animosities, we sin against the light. When we quench and grieve the Holy Spirit by sins of omission or commission or disposition, we sin against the light.
And we sit in church and hear the word of God and do nothing about it. We deceive ourselves and we sin against the light. Don't ever forget that the cross has its vertical beam and its horizontal beam. And the vertical stands for our relationship to God and the other for our relationship to each other. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, thy neighbors, thyself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. I'm not a Catholic, but sometimes I find myself as I meditate. I get to thinking about the cross and I say, Lord, how am I doing? How am I doing this way? You don't have to carry a crucifix around and do that. How am I doing this way? How are things between me and thee? And then I say, now is everything right between me and everybody as far as I know? Well, there was a time when a little old Jewish preacher with his bodily presence weak and his speech contemptible stood before the authorities and said, I exercise myself, now here's my calisthenics, here's my daily dozen, to have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. He knew what it was. Now let me ask you folks, I, I'm in churches nearly every week of my life, and they look mighty good on Sunday morning, the saints sitting out there, but sometimes by Friday night, you never heard of such meanness as has been going on in that place and in the hearts and lives of people. Look good on Sunday morning. I've seen it happen in Bible con. Have you taken time lately to say, Lord, how are things this way? Is there any point of rebellion between you and God? And are you a rebel against something that God wants you to do or not do? And you're in a controversy with the Most High. And is there somebody that you won't get straightened out with? You say, it's his fault. Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you bring your envelope to church on Sunday, and remember that your brother's at odds with you, hang on to your offering till you get right with your brother. Now, that would do awful things to the collection sometimes on Sunday morning. But get right. And remember that this light shines not only in the Savior, it shines in the Scriptures. You've got a Bible, you can pick it up any time, get a light for your path and a lamp for your feet. And when you ignore it and let the dust gather on it, you sin against the light. And remember, it shines in the saints. When we reject the accumulated testimony of the saints of all ages, when we ignore the witness of the church, and even the Christians of your community, you sin against the light. Many a man has sinned against the influence of a good old godly mother or the daily light of a Christian wife. That's sinning against the light. Now I repeat, it's not merely a matter of how many sins you've committed. And sometimes we can say, well, I've gone down the list and I can't count many. No, but it's how much light you have rejected. We're inclined to favor ourselves and say, I'll have you understand I'm not a Sodomite. But you may be a Capernaumite, and greater is their judgment in that day to come because they've had more light. That ought to take all the smooth, comfortable, uh, blasé attitude out of us. Inclined to congratulate ourselves. I'll have you to understand I'm not guilty of gross and vile iniquity. Neither was the rich young ruler. He kept the commandments. But when he walked away from Jesus, he left the light behind him. And so did Ju Judas. When he walked out, we read it was night. 
When a man walks away from Jesus Christ and the will of God in Christ, he's always going away from the light. And, beloved, it'll be better for Sodomites in the judgment day than respectable, religious, cultured, self-righteous, Capernaumites who may not violently oppose Jesus. They wouldn't do that for anything in this world. Neither would the Capernaumites. But you don't have to be a Sodomite. We know so much more than we're willing to do. Let me ask you in all seriousness tonight, what is your sin against the light? As great a preacher as Spurgeon said, I tremble as I think how poverty-stricken my life has been compared with my opportunities. If Spurgeon could say that, may the Lord have mercy on the rest of us. When I think of the scripture I could have read and didn't, the prayers I could have prayed and didn't, the good I could have done all these years and didn't, the souls I could have won and didn't, the kind words I could have spoken and didn't, the burdens I could have lifted and didn't, and the light that I have had and rejected. You sin against the light if you don't avail yourself of it. If you don't read your Bible and study your Bible and meditate upon it, thy word, a great possession, have I hid in my heart a great place that I might not sin against thee, a great purpose. And when I say meditate thereon, I don't mean mere memorization. That's good, I believe in it. But you can't always remember everything you read. You don't know what you had for lunch two weeks ago, but you're living on the strength of it. And uh, my Lord made it very plain when the disciples said, this is hard preaching. We don't, what are you talking about? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. He said, the words that I speak unto you, their spirit and their life, that's your food. And then when you don't walk in it, if we walk in the light, if we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, as the old song has it, <clears throat> you sin against the light when you don't let it shine. You're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. And so if you don't read and feed upon the word, because it is food. And that's the way you grow by food, rest, and exercise. And you not only read it and feed upon it, but you keep it. And not only that, but you speed it. That old song says there's a call ringing o'er the restless wave, send the light. This word is a light unto our path. It's not to look at, but to walk in. You, if you stand out here today at noon and stare at the sun a while, you'll go blind. The very thing that was meant to give you more light will take away the light you have if you misuse it. And there are people in Africa tonight who are blind because they never have had the light. And there are people in America who are blind because they've had too much. They've been from Bible conference to Bible conference and meeting to meeting and preacher to preacher and they have looked at it and made notes and all the rest of it and they have not done it yet. Now you look at the sun, you'll be blinded, but you walk in the light of it and you'll be blessed. And I'd like to ask you in all seriousness tonight, are you walking in the light of what you know? How about it? But remember this, 
Light is never enough. What this world needs tonight is not light, it's got it. Jesus Christ has come and visited us. What we need tonight is not light, but sight. All the light in the world won't do a blind man any good. His eyes have to be opened. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. And being a Ph.D. doesn't help one bit. It gives him no advantage, whatever, over some backwoodsman out here as far as laying hold of divine truth, because that's another world altogether. He's got to have his eyes open through the new birth. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, and Benjamin Franklin was one of our greatest founding fathers. Franklin greatly admired Whitfield, and every time the great preacher preached, Franklin would get way out on the rim of the crowd and listen, and thoroughly admired it, but he never did anything about it. He never actually admitted that he was blind and said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. We're judged by the light rejected, and because we reject the light, we don't have the sight. And it's been said here already tonight, we're not spectators, non-lookers. If somebody has wandered into this crowd tonight who actually has not done business with Jesus Christ, although you may be a nominal Christian church member, we must do something about the inescapable Christ. It is impossible to do nothing about Jesus Christ. Everybody in here has done something about Jesus Christ. You're lost, you're saved, you can't be neither nor. This thing's set up either or. You say, I never have made up my mind. Yes, you have. You've already made it up against him till you've made it up for him. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And furthermore, you must take him for what he claimed to be and what he is, not for what you may think he is. These sophisticates today who say, oh, I think he's the greatest moral teacher and the best man, but that's as far as I go. Now that thing's got a built-in contradiction in it. Jesus Christ claimed to be more than that. Before Abraham was, I am. No mere man could say that. No man cometh to the Father but by me. No mere man can say that. I just read to you all things have been delivered unto me of my Father. That never happened to anybody else. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Nobody else can say that. Christ, the Son of the living God, no mere man could accept that. Flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter's confession was not based on reputation, it was based on revelation. Whom do men say, whom do ye say? Did you know that Elton Trueblood, who's been quite a writer and a liberal man, but in his recent autobiography he says that C.S. Lewis turned him completely around. And C.S. Lewis did it preeminently when he said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else a devil out of hell. Either this man is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. We can shut him up for a fool or spit at him and kill him as a demon or else fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus Christ never gave anybody that option. Nobody. He didn't say that. And he isn't standing around today waiting for your compliments. He's waiting for your commitment. Utter, 
absolute as Savior and Lord. He's not standing with his hat in his hand waiting to be accepted, which I don't find anyhow in the New Testament is the word. I find believe, receive, trust, follow, confess, obey. Big question is, will he accept you? Yes, thank God he will. Him that cometh unto me, I'll no wise cast out. Thank God he will. But you don't come as though you were doing him a favor. You don't come as though he were a bargain on an auction block. Salvation's free, but friend, it's not cheap. It cost his life. I don't have to speak apologetically for Jesus Christ. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fairer is he than all the fair that fill the heavenly train. To him I owe my life and breath and all the joys I have. He makes me triumph over death and saves me from the grave. We're all on the spot tonight about Jesus Christ. This is the condemnation, and the word there in the original means crisis, just spelled with a K. This is the crisis. It never has been Watergate. It never has been Vietnam or anything else that we talk about. There's one crisis. This world has been invaded by Jesus Christ. He came down here, and he is the light. And Chuck Colson said, We've, he's already been mentioned here tonight. The central theme of Lewis's book, and Lewis had a terrific effect on Colson, and the essence of Christianity is summed up in one mind-boggling sentence, Jesus Christ is God, John 10:30. He was either God or a raving lunatic. And then Colson said there is less heresy in rejecting him altogether than to remake him into something he wasn't or isn't. And that'll do to think about. Oh, there's more tolerance for the heathen in the day of judgment than for folks who have had all the advantages of today. Christian homes, many of them in churches and preaching. And one feels like it's time to get up before America if we could do it and sing once more what some of us were brought up on. Oh, do not let the word depart and close thine eyes against the light. Poor sinner, harden not your heart. Be saved, though, tonight. Tomorrow's sun may never rise to bless thy long-deluded sight. This is the time. Oh, then be wise, be saved, though, tonight. For this is the test by which men are judged. This is the crisis that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It's a fearful thing to sin against the light that shines in the Savior and shines in the Scriptures and shines in the saints. And I would like to ask you before we go, and you've listened so well, but uh, I get a little bothered about what are we going to do this week about it all. Are you satisfied with what you've been doing about the light? Has the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, spoken to you tonight and pointed out some point where you are in inner rebellion against God, a sin of omission, something you ought to do you won't do, or a sin of commission, something you're doing you ought not to do, or a sin of disposition which is not right toward God or toward man, or the doubtful thing, he that uh, doubts is condemned to thee. I was in a lovely Presbyterian church some time ago and gave this message, and those people are not in the habit of just rushing down the aisle on every kind of a proposition, but I said what I'm saying here. And I don't try to drum up our parades, because I tell my Southern Baptist crowd, I think we've rededicated ourselves to death.
But I have. I stood there and I said, now you, you know you've heard it in this church. You've had it. But can you be humble enough and honest enough tonight? And I'm not going to beg you just to walk down here and stand and let me have a word of prayer with you and say, God, by the Holy Spirit, through his word, has convicted me that I have been sinning against the light. I may teach a Sunday school class and be an officer in the church, but God has called to mind the point of rebellion and the point of disobedience. And do you know one of the finest men in that church was the first to come? And one by one, deliberately, wasn't a sort of a spontaneous thing. Thoughtfully, they came until just about the membership came. And it wasn't because somebody else came. I know those folks. I don't know how you feel about it tonight, but somehow I don't think we ought to close without saying this. Have the singers returned yet? Will you come down, please? And I want you folks to turn to 297. You've sung it all your lives. And I want you to sing it in a different way tonight before we go. It's written in the plural, and we get lost in the crowd every time we sing this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. What a glory sheds on our way. And we sing it as a crowd, and that kills it sometimes. I want you to sing it this way. When I walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory sheds on my way. While I do his good will, he abides with me still. And with all who will trust and obey. And especially when you get to that third verse. But I never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar I lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship, sweet, I'll sit at his feet or I'll walk by his side in the way. And then this one really does put you in your corner. What he says, I will do. Where he sins, I will go. Never fear. Only trust and obey. I want you to just sort of prayerfully want us all to sing it in first person singular. Let's not get lost in the plural tonight and as we sing it. If you can be humble enough and honest enough with everybody looking at you, just to slip down here, if the Spirit of God has spoken to you, and you can say, Preacher, your sermon has not gone in one ear and out the other. God has spoken to me, and I want to stand here and say, I have been sinning against the light more than I've been aware of. I ask God to forgive me, and I want to... Feed on that word. I want to heed it. And I want to speed it. That's where your missions comes in and your testimony. And I want a conscience void of offense toward God and man. You don't have to tell us what it is. God knows and you know. But are you humble enough? I'm not going to beg you. 
But I felt like that I should give you the opportunity, and I'm going to. Now the next move is yours, and I want us to stand and prayerfully.